what the film shows is what George Orwell clearly said is that sport is war without the weapons. And these Olympic Games or World Cup soccer, etc., are essentially just a place for a country to go to war with each other and assert its geopolitical power through sport. And these athletes are, in essence, gladiators for their country. And the case of Russia and this program that went for 40 years in the case of the Sochi Olympics, Russia has been using its sport program to assert itself geopolitically and show dominance and power. And if they can win in sport and they can win in Olympics, what does this say about business? What does this say about war? What does this say about military strength, etc., etc.? And you look at that, and then you draw the analogy to Sochi. The, the 1936 games in, in Berlin was one of the, the pivotal moments in, in the rise of, of the Third Reich and of German nationalism and pride, and Hitler used those games to consolidate his power. And so we're seeing the replicating that in each one of these games where a country is using these games to basically assert itself on a geopolitical level. That's Brian Fogel. And this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, people. Happy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whenever, wherever you happen to be listening to this program. Hope you're good, doing well, feeling fine. As always, my name is Rich Roll. This is my podcast. Welcome to it the show where each week I dive deep with a wide variety of intriguing, inspiring, compelling characters to talk health, wellness, entrepreneurship, mindfulness, spirituality, and in the case of today's guest, documentary filmmaking, sport, and the wide-ranging implications of state-sponsored doping at the Olympic level. Before I get into it, a couple quick words about last week. Last week was a big one. My conversation with Lance Armstrong <laughs> received more listens, more comments, discussion, uh, and controversy in the first week of posting uh, than any other podcast I've ever done. And opinions are divided. I predicted that. That's fine. I guess I would say that it wasn't my intention to be controversial, but of course, as I pointed out in the intro to that conversation, emotions run high with Lance. He is inherently a divisive character. I'm not sure I was really prepared to be personally attacked or criticized for simply having a conversation with the guy, particularly as my approach was really to just better understand him, the situation he finds himself in, and uh, to, to just get a glimpse of what makes him tick, what it must be like to be Lance Armstrong. But I get it. Uh, nonetheless, I stand behind the conversation. It's fine. I do it again. Because no matter how you come down on Lance, it is irrefutable that he is one of the most prominent figures in not just sport, but of our time. And the story that swirls around him is one that has not just impacted cycling, but really impacted culture in the most massive way, including the impact that he had on this week's guest, Brian Fogel. If you ride bikes in Malibu, where I live, then chances are you know Brian. Uh, he's a former competitive cyclist. He's one of the strongest riders in the area. You can find him out on the hills all the time. And Brian is a guy who was personally quite impacted by the Lance story. His admiration of Lance Armstrong is, in fact, what led him to what he calls an investigative 
obsession. Just how far will we go to be considered the best? And as a filmmaker, Brian had this audacious idea to transparently document the process of experimenting with performance-enhancing drugs in sort of a Morgan Spurlock kind of way. The idea was that he would dope himself, he would observe the changes in his performance, and see if he could evade detection and capture this whole endeavor on film as a documentary. And the idea behind it all was really to help shed light on this belief that what the world watches on its sports fields should not necessarily be taken for granted as truth. And so to embark on this endeavor, he needed to find a doctor, somebody that could guide him through this process, this ordeal of doping. And he ended up hooking up with this renegade Russian scientist by the name of Dr. Grigory Rodchenkov, who at the time was a pillar of his country's anti-doping program. But as they start to grow closer, it suddenly becomes clear that Rodchenkov is something different altogether, that he is in fact the central figure in what can only be described as Russia's state-sponsored Olympic doping program, a program that runs to Russia's highest chain of command all the way up to Vladimir Putin. And so what begins as this personal firsthand experience of experimenting with performance-enhancing drugs ultimately pivots in terms of narrative towards what uh, can only be described as this really gripping, almost unimaginable uh, John le Carré, Jason Bourne-like thriller, this quite rare and rather spectacular collision of politics and sports. Uh, and when these two guys realize that they hold the power to reveal the biggest international sports scandal in living memory, kind of like all hell breaks loose. And what plays out is this amazing portrait of self-sacrifice in the interest of truth. It's an expose uh, that will not only forever color how you perceive Olympic sport, but ultimately has staggering implications on our world at the highest level of geopolitics. It's an amazing piece of filmmaking. It's one of the best documentaries I've seen in recent memory that demonstrates the power of this medium to literally rewrite history. And I'm thrilled to have Brian on the show today to walk us through what I think you guys are gonna discover is an unbelievably mind-blowing story. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailored fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection. 
truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. 
Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, Icarus, Brian Fogel. So Icarus premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this past year, where it won the Orwell Special Jury Award, and it was also the first ever Audience Choice Award at the Sundance Film Festival London. It's been called a game-changing documentary by Variety and the best nonfiction film of 2017 by the Financial Times. Uh, It was acquired by Netflix. That's where you can see it. Brian and the story behind the making of the film has been written about basically everywhere the New York Times, the LA Times, Financial Times, Variety, USA Today, Newsweek, The Atlantic, The Guardian. And Brian has appeared everywhere as well. NPR's All Things Considered, NBC's Meet the Press, Dateline, Charlie Rose, Late Night with Seth Meyers, the BBC, on and on and on. Today, I have the honor of sharing Brian's fascinating story, the gripping tale of Icarus and the implications that it lays bare regarding how we think about sport, how we think about self-sacrifice, and perhaps most importantly, the broader implications of sport on the geopolitical stage, including, as amazing as it may sound, our most recent presidential election and this current crisis of truth in which we find ourselves mired in. So without further ado, this is me and my conversation with Brian Fogel. Thanks for coming up here. Were you, uh, were you followed on your way up here? Um, not to my knowledge. <laughs> you were, are you sure? I guess, uh, I guess if I was being followed, I wouldn't, uh, you would probably know, right? wouldn't know you would about know. it. Well, it's, yeah. it's like, you say that in jest, but I was reading an article. I don't know which one it was, but you were doing an interview at like a New York hotel. And I'm sure this was, this wasn't recent. It was probably right around Sundance, I would imagine. But <clears throat> According to the reporter, you know, it looked like you were a little bit concerned that certain people were were kind of keeping an eye on you. It might have been uh, when I was in London, uh, maybe, um, yeah. where they had some extra security around me. But um, I guess I feel relatively safe. Yeah. It ha- has it been? Um, I mean, is that something that you think about, or you feel pretty okay with everything? Um, I think I, I, I felt about it a lot more um, when Gregory had first arrived to Los Angeles in that period between um, uh, understanding the information that he had and, and the evidence that he had and um, and are going to, um, to the New York Times with the story, which mm-hmm. for me... Um, and for Gregory and, the, and my team really felt, um, aside from the need to do that, but that it would also make it a lot more uh, public and also in many ways um, um, uh, make Gregory safe right. um, by bringing that information forward. So that seven-month period, um, I felt a, a lot of stress. Um, but... Recently, and since the release of the film, um, you know, I feel like uh, that the story's public, so I don't know what would be uh, gained right. um, to to come after myself. Ultimately, I'm I'm a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and 
and uh, and worked in a journalistic capacity to bring the story forward with Gregory. But um, I personally um, am not the person who who did this. It would be in the crosshairs, yeah, yeah. of course. Well, let's unpack it. I mean, the movie is extraordinary. You did an unbelievable job. I was deeply impacted by it. And it's really quite something. Like, it is it is quite a piece of work. Like, you should be very proud. I'm sure you are. And it's an exciting time for you. I mean, I would not be surprised if you got an Academy Award nomination for this movie. In fact, I would expect that to occur. Um, so, congratulations very cool um, and it's a really powerful story so before we kind of launch into it maybe we can create a little context for it um, I mean it's really birthed out of your your passion for cycling which has been you know a huge part of your life uh, for a long time living here in Malibu you're a fixture in the Malibu cycling scene and we have lots of mutual friends and it's funny right before the podcast you said you'd been to my house before I wasn't here but you were riding with some mutual friends of ours and that's that's funny that's like you know that's what it's like to ride a bike around here so tell me a little bit about your history with cycling um well th uh, thanks a lot for the uh, for the warm accolades and for me and the film it's um it's just important for me that that people see the movie because I think the um, the story in the film is is um, is something that people need to see to understand the geopolitics of what's going on um, in our country and in Russia um, and you know far beyond the the boundaries of sport. Mm -hmm. What the film is essentially shines a flashlight into, which is you know, um, what Russia is willing to do to win, and that transcends sport. It, it goes into, you know, winning at all costs and, um, and essentially without, um, without a moral compass um, and, and what those stakes are uh, involved in what you're willing to do to win. So, um, you know, so that I am hoping that any accolades that get presented uh, to the film um, while will be um, exciting for me. The bigger thing for me is that it will make people see the film mm -hmm. and hopefully open up a much deeper and broader conversation um, in this country and internationally um, on uh, the subject matter that's in the film. And really, uh, the bottom line is uh, Russian, uh, Russia's meddling, uh, not just in sports, but in geopolitics. Um, as far as my my cycling background um yeah i mean i i kind of started when i was 13 years old i i grew up racing in, in colorado and um it's just has been in my dna and mm -hmm. i and i got into cycling really because um i'm five foot eight um I'm a skinny guy, yeah. and uh, the reality was is I wasn't going to be a football player or a baseball player or a basketball player, and when I briefly tried uh, those sports, I quickly found myself ill-equipped to mm -hmm. compete, and um, and cycling is, is really uh, such an individual sport and a, a very mental sport as far as the um, kind of pain threshold that you, that you put yourself through, and um, and so I, I think cycling for me has really been my, my therapy through life. It's just been something that has kind of, I've always went back to and, and grounded me. And, um, and it's really my passion for cycling that started me on this journey that became Icarus mm -hmm. and that ultimately became this, this film.
And so you you end up racing in college, right? Um, at Boulder, or you, you need, and then at some point you have like a big kind of career-ending crash. Yeah, I had, I had raced. Um, I started my my first races were like 13, 14, 15. They had in uh, uh, in Colorado these things called the Red Zinger Mini Classics, mm-hmm. and um, it was literally uh, Jonathan Vauders and uh, and Bobby Julik and. Um, and all the uh, Hink Cappy eventually because right. he was over at the Olympic Training Center. And um, uh, I'm trying to remember all the guys who were in those races. Chris Weary. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so it was all those kind of guys of, of that generation. And I, and I grew up, you know, and I was racing for about seven years really, really uh, seriously. And when I was 19... Um, I was racing cat two and racing junior. It was my, like, I was technically no longer a junior, mm-hmm. but my racing age was still a junior. So I was racing both. And, and I go and I do this race called the tour de to be up in Northern Quebec. And it's this very prestigious junior race. Most of the best guys in the world have, uh, did it when they were, when they were juniors international field. And I did pretty well there. And the following weekend, I'm staying in Canada to do this race called the festival international de Hole. And it's pouring rain, and I'm in a break with about 10 guys, and there's about 5K to go, and I'm doing the math, and I'm going, wow, the worst place I'm going to get is 10th, uh-huh. and who knows, perhaps maybe I could get top three or something. And, um, and the guy, two, two bike lamps in front of me, uh, clips a wheel, because it's like pouring rain, and people's brakes aren't working. So he starts going over the handlebars and the guy in front of me hits him and is going over his handlebars and I'm watching this in slow motion and I and I eat his wheel in my mouth literally going literally the wheel goes in your mouth literally going yeah literally in my mouth and I I was probably going you know 30 miles an hour or something like that at that time and uh, the next thing I know I'm just in the middle of like a bush and my uh, immediate masochistic thought is to get on the bike and finish the race, (laughs) which I think all cyclists or endurance athletes can understand. Like somehow, even though you're totally mangled, you're going to finish the race. And there's uh, that, that rush of adrenaline too, that clouds, you know, logic. Yeah. And, and so I just remember I'm in this bush and, and then I quickly realized that one of my, uh, I'm stuck in one of my pedals hasn't released. And so I'm like going, wait, did I break my leg? And then I'm thinking that maybe I like broken arm and then I'm feeling my mouth and I rub my, my tongue across my teeth and basically realize that, that my teeth are either gone or in pieces oh and shattered. And, and I'm in French Quebec, no less. Um, so needless to say, that, that crash was traumatic enough for me that I came back. Uh, that put me out for the rest of the season. And I then came back the next year to try to race. And I just found it my, my mindset that, that that difference between taking those chances to be competitive, as anybody who's into the sport understands, uh, were no longer there. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself constantly chasing wheels or opening up gaps that I shouldn't have opened up or um, not willing to take the chances on a descent that you need to take. Um, and, uh, and so I gave racing a break, um, put down the bike for a few years. And then as I was probably about 23, I picked it up again and I still ride. Right. 
Yeah, and uh, once that that switch is flicked and you have that fear, like it's kind of game over to be able to compete at that level, right? Like if you don't have that balls out instinct to just gun it on the descent, you know, rain or no rain, then it's going to be pretty difficult to be able to be in the mix. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And, and um, uh, for, for Icarus, when I came up with this idea that I was going to go do this, the Haute route in, mm. um, in Europe and, and I had read about um, in Velo News, they had this article a couple of years ago talking about like the hardest amateur events on the planet. And one of them was like the Cape Epic. Mm-hmm. And another one was, um, oh, I can't even, I, I'm trying to remember. There's, there's another one in Europe, but the one that they rated the hardest is this Hote route. And it's, you can do seven days, 14 days, or 21 days if you're totally uh, right. off your rocker. But everybody's basically doing seven days. And I read about this race, and it's through the French Alps, and it's every climb that I've ever read about Alpe d'Huez and Mont Ventoux and Galibier and Madeleine. And it's like the seven hardest days of like the Tour de France if right. you were Condensed to put it all into together one week. into one week. And when um, I get obsessed with this idea that I'm going to do this race, and part of that is going to be that I'm going to dope. But the interesting thing about that is, is that um, in the back of my mind, there was always that, that fear of what am I doing? Because to me, um, uh, taking the drugs or performance enhancing drugs, whatever the hormones, I wasn't scared about. I was scared about flying off my bike going 70 miles an right. hour. And that was, uh, I think, the, the biggest variable in, in coming back to kind of just do these two races. In a where, competitive context. Yeah, yeah, where I was like, I'm really just, um, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm too old to have yeah, no, an injury and, like this. And, yeah, no, and, I get it. Well, you do, I mean, the first time you do Haute Route is, was that 2009? What year no, was that? No, that was... Um, 2014 2014 okay. and then and you again, got like 14th or, yeah right so you did well like yeah. how many how many guys are are in are in it there's 440 guys wow. that so, year yeah so you're like you know you're right in there and then you have this idea i want to talk about the genesis of the idea that you're going to go back the following year but you're going to be you're going to compete um after undergoing like a full protocol of performance enhancing drugs and you're going right. to document all of this in a film so what was the catalyst for that idea? Well, that, that, that catalyst, um, and, and which was a whole reason in the beginning as I, as I set uh, off to make Icarus, and, and actually named the film Icarus um, before I ever even picked up a camera. And, and the reason why is because I was looking at um, Lance Armstrong's journey, and I likened him to Icarus, essentially this guy who just kept flying too close to the sun and too close to the sun and too close to the sun. And he finally just essentially got his wings burnt and, and plummeted, uh, to the earth. And, um, and the concept, um, for me was I was looking at that story and going in the popular media. Um, if you talk to anybody, um, they all believe that Armstrong had been caught. But he actually hadn't been caught. It was like getting Al Capone on tax evasion. And behind the he's been caught um, was actually a, 
a program in anti-doping that really hadn't worked. And so I'm going, wait, it's, it's the beginning of 2013, and here he is confessing on Oprah. But as he's confessing, he still to this day has passed 500 tests. Right, he never failed a test. Never, never failed a mm-hmm. test. Now, scientists can go back now and they can go, well, you see this anomaly in his blood passport and, and here he would be suspicious for, you know, for erythropoietin use or whatever they want to look at. But the bottom line is that he had not failed a test. So I'm going, forget about Armstrong. What does this mean for, for the world of sport? that if the most tested athlete on planet Earth isn't being caught by the science that's in place to catch him. And ultimately, as a society, we're, we're mad at Armstrong, but in flipping um, you know, that on its head, should we be mad at the system that clearly is ineffective and leaves the athlete with the choice to make rather than being so upset at the individual athlete for making that choice when ultimately the athlete wants to win mm-hmm. and what is involved in winning. So, so I was exploring that and, and I saw as I started long before I picked up a camera, I started talking to all these scientists um, and one after the other would tell me that uh, essentially you can get around the testing Essentially, you can still get around the testing regardless of of Armstrong's confession Um, and that it was essentially this constant cat and mouse game. And many of these guys that I was encountering and speaking to um, said to me, yeah, we could help get you around it, but we don't want to be involved in it. But it was based on on this kind of hypothesis that I had that set me out on this journey because I thought it would be really interesting because we you know, had never seen on camera, and I think it came from both a personal curiosity, but also in looking at a, in a, in a, in a journalistic fashion of how to kind of tell this bigger story, um, that everybody's curious about what these drugs do or don't do. Anybody who's an athlete or an armchair quarterback, they all, you, it's always a topic of conversation. And I was very curious, A, to see what the drugs did, and B, um, to explore whether or not this system worked, and if it didn't work, and assuming that it didn't work, essentially presenting to society or anybody who's going to watch this film the larger question of, uh, hey, what do we want to do about this? What can be done about this? Should we care? Should we not care? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the 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 the, the uh, blueprint that I had set out and initially uh, going to make Icarus. Right. So the inquiry from the outset is, is bifurcated on the one hand, it's like, what's it like to do all these drugs and what's going to happen if I do it and go compete? Like, how will I feel? Um, how is that going to impact my performance? Like, let's document it and show the world what this is really all about. And the second prong being, Uh, All right, we know that the system's broken. Lance Armstrong got through. We know many other athletes have, but how broken is it? And how easy would it be or difficult would it be for somebody like you to undergo the protocol that that, you know, some of these other people have done and try to game it and get by? Right. So the idea was that you wanted to have your blood tested and see if you, too, could be somebody who could pass these tests. Correct. Right. Um, So then it becomes like, is it? 
so broken that this is easy? Or is it, do you have to be somebody like Armstrong who has a tremendous amount of resources at his fingertips in order to do it? Well, I think what I, when I quickly started to discover was that there are so many variables. So it's not, it's not one versus the other, which is ultimately what leads me to Gregory Rachenkov, um, who's running the, at the time, is running the Russian Moscow Anti-Doping Laboratory, which is really the anti-anti-doping right? laboratory yes. disguised as the anti-doping laboratory. And, and, and what I found was that, you know, any kind of chink in the armor, one thing out of place, um, could essentially disrupt the whole system. So that, you know, if you look at it from like the Armstrong perspective of it, well, that game was always about how do you essentially keep one step ahead of the science mm -hmm. and going, okay, we know that the test that they're using for HGH um, essentially can only uh, detect HGH within about a 12-hour period. So we know if we, if I take HGH at this time in the day and I can, you know, and even if they show up for a test, I can, you know, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay as long as I have this time frame. We know that if I take this much of erythropoietin, but I set these different values and take this, this amount that I'm not going to test positive. And so, you know, the, the Armstrong of it was always trying to stay one step ahead of the science. And in his case, you know, he had a, a lot of advisors as did, you know, his team, as did other writers of that generation. I mean, the, I think the amazing thing that um, when they catch him, we learn that Leipheimer and Hincapi and all of his other teammates had been doing the exact same thing as, mm -hmm. had, that he had been doing mm -hmm. his entire career. And these guys had never been caught. So that is the, the one side of it. And then there's, and then there's the, the chinks in the armor, and that's the Rachenkovs of it, the, the Gregory Rachenkovs of it, meaning if you've got somebody within the lab who's altering your samples or who's working for the Russian ministry or You don't who have to is, be one step ahead you know, of the science. You don't even need to worry about yeah. the science. You're controlling the science. Because you're, you're controlling, exactly. Yeah. And you kind of launch into this, uh, you know, on this mission to explore these two prongs, and and it's it's there's a certain levity to it. Like I wouldn't go so far. Like it's sort of been compared to Morgan Spurlock and Supersize Me. Like it's not a it's not like a comedy in that regard. Like I feel like you approach it with a little more seriousness than than maybe you know someone like Morgan would have. But <clears throat> that was really the exploration and the focus. And then you meet. Gregory Rodchenkov, and we're going to get into who he is and, and the impact that he had on, on this story. And the whole documentary sh shifts focus away from that narrative and into what really becomes like a John le Carre novel, like this crazy spy novel, you know, born supremacy type situation with gigantic geopolitical implications and this firestorm, this maelstrom of a scandal that suddenly you find yourself in the center of. I mean, as a documentary filmmaker, in certain respects, like looking at it completely objectively, like that's a gift. And it's also, that's what makes documentaries great when you go on this journey and you're open to whatever's going to happen and these magical things sort of occur. And then you can 
follow that story and it becomes something else altogether. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, um, you know, the the film, once we got into the, the creative filmmaking process of it after, you know, shooting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage and, and aside from what the story was, it became um, on a filmmaking level with my team of how to shape and craft the narrative into a thriller mm -hmm. and to make you feel uh, that you were simply in a, um, you know, a, a narrative thriller that happens to all be true. And so it is a documentary. And, um, and that came from what I was truly experiencing during that time on a daily basis, an emotional level. And so as we went back to kind of shape the film, as looking at Paul Greengrass movies and right. Doug Lyman films. Yeah, it has and, that handheld and, kind of. Uh, and, and, you know, and Errol Morris on the documentary side mm -hmm. and Laura Poitras with Citizen Four and, uh, and Man on Wire. And, and so thinking about how to kind of like blend these worlds of, of this true story, which is a documentary and the thriller aspect of, of what was really going on in my life and, and in Gregory's life and the stakes that were involved, um, but to, but to craft kind of the narrative um, to bring you into that story and keep you engaged. And that was, um, uh, that was a very long process with my team from, you know, the music and the sound and the editing and how we, and how we put that together to have that, hopefully that emotional f effect. Um, and it changed from Sundance to the release on Netflix, right? Quite you a edited bit. It after that, uh, quite a bit. We um, we had a the film was acquired at Sundance, um, and and Netflix um, came to the table. And for me, um, the Netflix of it um, was the best option for people to see the film um, because we're in a, a kind of a uh, uh, an error where it doesn't matter what your documentary might be. People are conditioned now that they're going to see documentary mm -hmm. essentially on Netflix or mm -hmm. they're going to go see it on HBO, um, etc. cetera, um, where the days of literally going to a movie theater when your option is, is do I go see whatever it is, the new Star Wars, and that's going to be my $100 evening at the movie theaters, or am I going to go see um, a documentary? Um, the majority of the population is going to go choose to see Star Wars. And so with that in mind, you know, the Netflix of it, to go into 190 countries at the push of a button and have your film translated into every language that Netflix um, is their platform is operating in, um, to me was, was a no-brainer because ultimately I wanted to see to it that, that the film was seen. So they acquired it Sundance and creatively we had raced to get ready to Sundance when they, when they let you know that your movie is into Sundance, you basically have like seven weeks. Yeah, you don't and you don't sleep. Yeah, like and, you don't, and, movie, and so yeah. we hadn't, you know, we hadn't, <laughs> we hadn't slept for the months and months leading up to Sundance yeah. to submit you know, a cut to them. How and many then, hours of footage did you shoot total? Oh, it was hundreds, yeah. hundreds. And, uh, but then bringing in the, you know, the thousands of archival clips and how to basically craft, 
you know, the narrative around the footage that we shot, but then the archival plus mm -hmm. bringing in CGI and motion graphics and, and recreating that lab, etc. But uh, so Netflix acquires and, and sit down with them and just say, hey, look, um, we think this film can be better. Um, these are the things that I want to keep working on. And, uh, and Netflix said, okay, sounds good to right. us. And so we kept working for, for four months after Sundance. It was like Sundance, it was like the editing had never stopped. We mm -hmm. just went, you know, we were sleepless up until Sundance. Sundance happens, that's two weeks. Sundance ends and the very next week, we're just back at it yeah. like it never happened. Um, but that four months, um, A, allowed two things. One, allowed for um, uh, me and my team to have an audience already have seen the film. And as you see it over and over again, you become more and more critical as a filmmaker of going, wait, that, that can be better, that can be better, we can do this, we can do that. And two, and you're able to then go back and, and work already knowing what is really working mm -hmm. and where you feel like the movie can be um, better refined. And so was, that was an amazing opportunity that a lot of filmmakers don't have to come out of Sundance and then continue to be able to work on their film. And, uh, and Netflix was incredibly supportive, been an uh, amazing company to, to work with. Yeah, it's with. the best portal for you to be on by yeah. far. I mean, the, the, the number of eyeballs that you can reach there versus any other platform, it's not even, you know, comparable. Yeah, very amazing. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So you're you're launching into this adventure and uh, and you have this idea, but you're going to have to find the guy who's going to walk you through how you're going to do this performance enhancing protocol, right? Like who you know who do you call and and what leads you to this guy Gregory? Well, um, you know we don't get into a lot of the detail in the film. We we dangle the carrot without. Mm -hmm getting into the real backstory because you know you only have so much time in in, yeah. in in a feature but essentially as i started out before i even picked up a camera in this thing and i'm talking to scientists um i get put into touch uh with don catlin and i went after actually don catlin i actually sought him out because i knew that he was a essentially the the foremost scientist uh, in u.s history and uh in the development of the anti-doping system right he ran the first lab or the first like lab that. the ucla lab and he did the first ever testing for the 84 olympics in los angeles he went on to do the testing for the atlantic uh the atlanta olympics he went on to do the testing for the salt lake city olympics so this guy is widely considered one of the most knowledgeable and foremost scientists um in the world on anti-doping and and also laboratory operations so in the early days of coming up with kind of the the thesis for the film um 
I reached out to Don Catlin and we started having lunches and he's in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and, and talking by phone and, and I, you know, told him essentially what, what I wanted to do, which was, Hey Don, do you believe that the anti-doping system in sports works? And he said, no. I said, do you think, you know, what are the probabilities of it ever really working? And, and he basically said, well, I think it's very difficult. And he went on and listed a, a million different reasons. And, and at the time, Richard Pound, the head of WADA, had actually just released a report. Um, and this report, um, which uh, Dick Pound authored, also got into huge detail as to all the different fallacies of the anti-doping system and what it was facing in its reality to succeed on, on a global level. And so Don... Didn't you also, sorry to interject, but didn't you also ask Don, like how many athletes do you think at this yeah. highest level are doping? Yes. And so I'd ask Don, you know, how many, what percentage of the athletes do you think are doping? And, and, and he said, all of them. And I said, well, why do you believe that, Don? He goes, well, prove it to me otherwise. And I said, well, how can I prove it to you, Don? He goes, well, you can't. Right. So, so he was looking at it from a perspective of not that everybody is taking performance-enhancing drugs, not that everybody is cheating. But anyone who's adequately motivated to circumvent the checks but, and balances but, can do so. Exactly. But, but, but he was looking at it in, the, in, in his personal experience and going, hey, I, I, caught, I tested Armstrong 50 times. I never got him. I ran the lab and I saw, you know. So he was looking at it on a personal perspective going, hey, uh, every time I thought somebody was clean, then something would right. come come down the line that they weren't clean and so i can't prove to you that they are clean unless essentially you're going to put an athlete into like a biodome system yeah. and have them under 24 7 surveillance where they're where you know you're you're monitoring them every uh, eight to 12 hours um so so don was very candid um in his beliefs and um, is he still professionally involved in? Well, no, he's retired. retired. He's yeah. retired, and I think his willingness to speak to me um, also had to do with the fact that he was retired. Meaning, yeah. um, while he was still in the system on a day-to-day -day basis, um, it's very hard to kind of speak about the problems within the system. While at the same time, that's your livelihood and that's your job, um, which I think is also part of the yin and yang and the, uh, and the two-sided nature of this issue or problem is that a lot of people involved in it that even understand it are not going to go and speak against it because it's their, because it's their livelihood. So I, um, uh, so Don originally says to me that he'll help me essentially design a protocol and uh, and advise me on how to essentially get around um, the system, right. and in so doing. And why do you um, think he was willing to help you? Just I, I curious. Think, I, I think in the beginning, and that changed. I think he was. I think he was interested to show firsthand um, the fallacies in the system that he himself couldn't expose. But as a retired scientist, as somebody who had kind of spent his life, his life's work, 
trying to do something about it. I think he was interested in exposing also. Right, if the, you can shine a spotlight yeah. on this, then it's, the narrative shifts from, oh, there's a few outliers like Armstrong who can get around this to, no, there's a wide gaping hole here that anybody can walk through. Exactly, and, I, and, I, and, and when I was approaching the film, um, I was approaching it uh, that Armstrong was the haystack and not, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, that Armstrong was, you know, uh, not the, the, uh, the needle in the haystack, that he was the haystack. He, mm -hmm. just, he just happened to be the best of his generation, but ultimately doing the same thing that, that most of the athletes of his generation right. were doing as well. Um, so, so I was interested in, in, in exploring that story, but on a global sport level. And, and, and Catlin thought that was a, an interesting idea. But along that came all these variables, which is first of all, well, how are you gonna get your samples into a WADA accredited lab? And that's easier said than done, because technically, it doesn't matter if you're a professional athlete or an amateur athlete, you can't just get your samples into a WADA lab because if you can get a WADA lab to test your samples, well, then anybody can essentially mm -hmm. figure out how they can game the system if they're sending in their samples every day and going, okay, am I positive now? Am I yeah, positive yeah. now? Do I test positive now? Do I test yeah, positive now? Yeah, they don't want now? that happening. Yeah. And so, so there was a huge variable there of, of how you're going to get your samples into a lab. And as Don got further into and kind all of the, labs, sorry the, to interrupt you, all labs are registered with WADA, so there's yes. just, you just can't do it. Like That's there's right. no lab that you can go to. That's right. Well, I guess there was a lab well, you right. could yeah, go well, to. Well, you had to go to Russia <laughs> to find it, but that <laughs> lab does exist. But, uh, <laughs> so, so Don um, says, look, I, I ultimately can't help you. I, I don't want to be advising you. Um, I can't prescribe you what you need and I don't want the liability of that if something were to go wrong or you were to be get, you know, injured or hurt or have a heart attack, whatever that is. And third of all, I can't get your samples into a WADA lab. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, there's a scientist who I know that I think um, might find this interesting. Yeah, I got the guy. And he connects me to, to Dr. Gregory Rachenkov. And Gregory at the time is running Russia's uh, anti-doping laboratory. And this is now right about the time of Sochi and we don't get into this into the film. So this is uh, March of 2014. Basically he was just finishing or, you know, it was like he was actually at Sochi as we first started corresponding. And I approached him and I just said, hey, I'm a, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm interested in discussing with you the fallacies in the anti-doping system. Uh, Don Catlin referred me to you. Um, would you be willing to kind of like talk to me? And I didn't tell him what I wanted to do at the time. It wasn't like, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Will you help me dope yeah. and evade detection? But we go back and forth on an email exchange and he invites me after a couple months of corresponding and we'd actually spoke on the phone a few times he invites me to go meet him in oregon and this is july of 2014 he's lecturing at this symposium in oregon and i make this decision that i'm not going to go up there with a the film crew i'm not going to spook him i just want to go up there and, and meet him because i don't know at the time is this 
the right guy? Mm -hmm. Is he going to help me? What, you know, what am I really getting into other than this is a Russian scientist who just did all the testing for Sochi. He's clearly a man of interest and could clearly advise if he wanted to. So I go up there and meet him. We spend a couple days together and we we end up drinking even though I'm training but you know it's just what you do when you're around a Russian scientist and and I ask Gregory I say um, do you believe that an Olympic medal a medal in the Olympics can be won without performance enhancing drugs and he looks at me and he goes I should believe I try to believe but I do not believe that an Olympic medal can be won without performance enhancing drugs across the board yeah. any sport and then he pauses and he goes i don't know maybe i'm a bad man and what do you make of that and i and literally it was okay uh what do i make of this and 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 he agrees um to help me uh on this journey after this conversation i tell him what i want to do and he says i like challenges this sounds interesting you know, and you told him you were making a film. Yeah. And uh, which, you know, of course, was kind of surprising in the, wow, this guy should not be doing this. This is against his, his job. This is against WADA the World Anti-Doping Agency Code. Um, and you shouldn't Catlin, be doing this. Yeah, unlike Catlin, he's gainfully employed. He's exactly. still employed yeah. by this. He's not retired. Exactly. And unlike Catlin, you're still in the system. This yeah. is still your job. Um, but he agrees to help me because we kind of formed this, this trust, this relationship. And I say, and at the time I even said, Hey, look, you know, anything we film when the movie's done, I'll show it to you. And we just kind of just hit it off. And, uh, and so he agrees to help me. And, uh, about six months later, this is July, 2014, I then start speaking to him and this is where the film picks up and this is the first time we see him in the film on skype and it's the first skype conversation i've ever had with him as well and there he is and i'm ready to start doping and literally as i'm getting ready to start doping this german television uh special kind of like a 60 minutes comes out and this german reporter who had been investigating Gregory in the lab, comes out with this scathing TV program alleging that Russia has a state-sponsored doping program and that Gregory Wachenkov is, is essentially one of the very, very key, mm. key figures um, in this program. And so this news piece comes out right as I'm literally starting my doping program. And, um, and so Gregory is under investigation the entire year that he's advising me how to dope. So he's under investigation while at the same time he's coming to Los Angeles and helping me <laughs> smuggle my urine back to Moscow. Yeah. Um, I'm in myriads of Skype calls with him where he's advising me on my protocol. And, and what happens is over this year, we truly, truly form a friendship. And as this investigation is going on, um, I'm quietly behind the scenes, which I don't get into in the detail of the film, but, but um, I'm going and interviewing all these guys that are investigating Gregory and asking them 
None of them realize that I know Gregory. None of them realize that I'm doping, but I'm just asking them as a documentary filmmaker. So if these allegations against Russia prove to be true, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. Do you think, you know, uh, that this happened? What do you think is Gregory's involvement in this? What, you know, so I'm coming at them as a documentary, Mm -hmm. but, but what I'm doing is I'm, and, and my team is that we are essentially planting kind of all the seeds should the other part of this story turn into something a lot larger. Oh, I see. So and you're already aware that this pivot might be at play. Um, uh, myself and um, uh, my producing partner, Dan Kogan with Impact Partners and my my editorial team and everything, we were... We were very, we didn't know how big it was going to be, but clearly as I come out of Oregon and then I'm doping and this investigation is going on, I mean, I was, I was very mindful of the fact that there was an investigation going yeah. on, but from a narrative focus in the film, I couldn't rely on that. I had set out with a hypothesis that the anti-doping system has lots of problems. I'm going to show firsthand, you know, what it is to dope, how to evade detection, how much better I get. I, and, and I have this Russian scientist doing this, and he shouldn't be doing that to begin with. And that, to me, would make a, a, a decent or, yeah, or a compelling documentary in and of mm-hmm. itself. I mean, that, that worked for Morgan Spurlock and supersized me. And, and, and in and of itself, I thought that that was going to be compelling. But... I also knew that there was another story unfolding and there was an investigation going and that Gregory was was being focused on. And so when you watch that film, every time we see those Skypes, I'm always then talking about the investigation. What do you think will happen? And then, you know, we we cut to somebody maybe commenting on it. So we were we were very aware that there could be Uh, a much bigger story there but it i wasn't going to put all my eggs into that basket so i so during that time i was essentially continuing to make the movie that i was setting out to make that that my uh producing team and my investors had had come in based on that hypothesis while at the same time i'm 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 investigating and uh and and making sure that i'm prepared should should, yeah, should, should this develop this other thing develop with Gregory uh, that turns out to be um, as it turned out to be a you know a hundred times bigger than than I think any of us could have imagined at the time. The fact that he was under investigation and this sixty minutes type show airs right at essentially the outset of your involvement with him in terms of him helping you figure out how to dope makes it all the more amazing that he would agree to do this. And I know, you know, you've thought a lot about this and it's not sort of expressly addressed in the movie, but looking back, like, why do you think that he jumped on board to, to do this with you? Because in the movie, I mean, the guy's like a gift because for a filmmaker, I mean, he's so He's, he's got charisma, he's funny, he's gleeful, like there's an enthusiasm and, you know, the, the bond between you guys is really palpable. And I think that really anchors the emotional, you know, core of the story, which, you know, is great for you as a filmmaker, but it still begs the question, like, why is he doing this? 
Well, I, I he had a bigger story to tell, um, and um, and I think as as our trust developed, um, he knew that unlike um, like this German reporter that had essentially broke the first piece of the story, that we had a friendship and that I was not going to stab him in the back. I wasn't out there to, to exploit a story. And he had went through a lot of kind of moral conundrums. Um, you know, first of all, I think we had to look at how the sports system in, in Russia works, which is unlike the U.S. Or, or most Western European countries where sport is kind of privatized. Or let's say you're playing on the basketball team. Well, here you're playing for the Los Angeles Lakers and you're being paid a salary for the Lakers. In Russia, you're playing for the ministry. You're playing mm -hmm. for the Russian government. And the Russian government is writing your check. And essentially every single professional athlete in Russia, like it was during communism and as it is today, are essentially government employees. You're essentially an athlete for the Russian government. And Gregory was an employee of the government. And he came up in that system that that is essentially the Russian government is in charge of sports. And the ministry, the sports ministry, is a part of the Russian government. So, you know, he had grown up in this system that this is how it was done. And I think that, that as the years went by and the ass got bigger and bigger, um, he saw himself as, um, as a disposable cog in that wheel. And his career, which we don't get into in, in the film in detail, is there were many times where he was forced to sacrifice an athlete essentially, you know, where the athlete would be reported positive mm -hmm. because, you know, if nobody tested positive, well, that looks like Russia's up to something. Right. It doesn't. Yeah. It's not kosher. Right. So they're, they're going to have to throw somebody under the bus that's every right. once in a while. So and that's, so that's a huge part of that right. whole program. So he's dealing with this, this ethical conundrum that he's constantly having to throw athletes under the bus that that, you know, that, that believe that he's protecting them. That trusted him yeah. too. And that are under the belief that, that they're going to undergo these protocols and they're going to be taken care of. That's right. And, and there's, so there's that going on. Um, the development of the bottle swapping system. I think he came out of Sochi and his willingness to start working with me was that he had, he had believed that this system had reached its logical conclusion. And maybe explain the system a little bit about what happened in Sochi so people understand so what, or seen the what, movie. Uh, prior to Sochi, um, the Sochi Olympics, um, the game for him uh, and the rest of the anti-doping world, I guess you could call it, was always the cat and mouse game of the science. So in Gregory's case, he's a scientist and a brilliant scientist, and he's developing tests to catch uh, dopers, cheaters in sport. Well, at the same time, he's developing the anti-venom to his own tests so that the Russian athletes are getting away while other athletes around the world are being mm -hmm. caught through the methodology that he created. And that's, you know, full, you know, which we get into the film of, of Orwell and Doublethink of essentially, 
you know, uh, being both sides of the same coin. Right. But, this, the, the, the anti-doping establishment in Russia is a doping establishment. Exactly. And it's, and it's, and the, and the, and it's only a front for a doping operation to pretend to be an anti-doping operation. Now that to him was the world that he knew and what was always that world. But what began to happen, it was no longer about the science. It was just purely about fraud. And what Rush had figured out how to do was how to break into the urine collection bottles that are the um, benchmark, hallmark, whatever you want to call it, of the anti-doping system, meaning the, the athletes give a urine sample, they divide their sample between these two collection bottles, an A bottle, a B bottle, it's this glass bottle, and they have this top on it. And this top is kind of like Fort Knox. You cannot get into it. You can only break the top for the testing, and the B sample stays in storage for the next 10 years should they ever need to go back and retest it. So Russia, with the help of the KGB, the FSB, figures out how to break into these collection bottles. And in so doing, they are able to defraud the entire anti-doping system because now they don't need to worry about gaming the science. They don't need to worry about, hey, did this runner you know, stop taking X drug seven days before competition and what amount that they were going to take and how to mask the steroids within the, within, you know, that athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, now it was, Hey, you can take anything you want and we're going to just swap out your dirty urine and, and put in clean urine right. in its place. So the, and the, the links that they went to, to the machinations behind how they actually executed on that plan at Sochi, as demonstrated by this incredible motion graphic that you guys created, is unbelievable. Like it's, that truly is out of a spy novel. And it is. It's like a. It's like an Ocean Eleven's uh, Ocean Eleven heist. Uh, heist. And they had figured out, even in the construction of building this laboratory in Sochi, how they were going to game the system. And so this was no longer about science or the doping or the anti-doping. This now his career was essentially, as he said, he was their doggy bag. Mm -hmm. He was the guy that was out there to to pick up the poop, and you know, and 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 clean up the mess. But it wasn't about him really being the scientist anymore. And he viewed that this system had reached its logical conclusion, that you couldn't continue in such a brazen manner. And that, and that it, it had just gotten out of control. And, and the bigger thing about that is, is out of the Sochi Olympics, as Russia wins 33 medals, the highest medal count, and they win 13 gold, the most gold of any country, national pride soars, Putin's approval rating soars, and he, two weeks later, goes uh, into Ukraine and uh, fueled by those approval ratings right. and 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 brazen you know in yeah. his in his right to do so right and goes in to try to um you know uh take back a part of ukraine and uh and and gregory felt in personally responsible for this he felt that that his success in sochi to which he had been awarded um the 
uh, the Medal of Friendship by Vladimir Putin. That's the highest honor that you can get. And he literally got a Medal of Friendship uh, from Vladimir Putin, uh, um, congratulating him on his success at Sochi, meaning if there's ever any doubt, despite the uh, Russian denials to this day that uh, they knew nothing about this. Here, Gregory is awarded right. the and Medal P of Putin Friendship. Putin later says that he doesn't even know who the guy is, doesn't know his name. Of course, that's that's not true. Of course. I mean, I think it's there's a couple sort of observations on that. I mean, the first is, you know, it's I think it's important for people to understand that, like, Gregory, you know, he'd been violating what we would perceive as a, a moral, ethical, you know, code all along, but his his sort of dividing line or his line in the sand was just a little bit further down, right? Like he was okay. Like he grew up as a elite track and field athlete. His right. mother was injecting him with steroids right. when he was 15. Like this is his reality, right? And That's this right. is the reality of sport in Russia. <clears throat> there was no dilemma for him until it reached that point where the fraud became so pervasive and he actually wasn't performing work as a scientist anymore and more as like an errand boy of like you know, like three card Monty, you know, almost to just hide these samples and stay one step ahead of, of, of WADA and the IOC. That, that, that's right. And, um, you know, I, I think the, the amazing thing is regardless of the, of the conversation that, that might want to be had on, on Gregory in the sense of, well, he perpetrated this fraud, um, uh, he's complicit, etc. He had to look at the the extraordinary risks that he ultimately took to bring this story public. Um, you know, had he stayed in in Russia, um, there is no doubt that he would, would not be killed. alive today, um, as witnessed well, by the two other were. guys mm -hmm. uh, that that uh, perished with this information. One of which was in conversations with David Walsh. That's on correct the, on the eve of of having a, a quote unquote heart attack, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, that was Nikita Kamayov, who was uh, running Rusada, the Russian anti-doping agency, and he was involved in the conspiracy. And um, when this report comes out that Gregory flees uh, Moscow and essentially escapes to Los Angeles, um, Nikita decides that he's gonna tell his side of the story and what happened to David Walsh because all these guys have been forced to resign. They've been pushed under the bus. They're already being labeled as the bad guys by the ministry, even mm -hmm. though they were essentially the employees and, and following orders. So Nikita decides that he's going to do that and uh, makes a plan to meet up with David Walsh. And Who's the, for people that are listening, he's the journalist who basically you know, chased Lance around forever. Yes, he's the guy who wrote, uh, what was it, uh, L.A. Um, he wrote books, multiple but... books on basically trying to expose Armstrong. And he's the journalist, the Sunday Times journalist who the Stephen Frears film, the program, was mm -hmm. is ultimately about basically his hunt for Armstrong and how he essentially gets Armstrong. Um, and... Um, Anyway, so Nikita had been speaking to, to David Walsh, and before they were able to meet, uh, he dies at age 52 of a heart attack. Um, and uh, in Gregory's mind, this was not uh, a heart attack at all, that this was a, um, a purposeful death. This was essentially a murder. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, the stakes were very high, but, but Gregory's decision ultimately to come out and be a whistleblower um, and the extent that he went to do that, I think, are, are pretty extraordinary mm-hmm. because he could have come to Los Angeles and kept his mouth shut or he could have just said a little bit or he had multiple options. But the or thing he could is, have disappeared is, on you. Or he could have disappeared, scared. right? Yeah. He could have came here, you know, got here, you know, uh, and and vanished. Um, but the fact is, is that he, he wanted to tell his story and he wanted to blow the whistle. He wanted to bring this evidence forward. And I became the guy that he entrusted uh, to help do tell that. The story. And myself and the team uh, essentially brought on... Uh, you know, uh, Russian translators, people that could help us archive all the evidence, people that could help us uh, create spreadsheets and documents because everything was in Russian and get this to a place that we could bring this story forward. Um, and at the time that the, the story breaks and we bring it to the New York Times, which is in May of 2015, um, I couldn't have imagined the current political climate. I couldn't imagine that, you know, the current U.S. administration, that there would be uh, charges of Russian meddling and interference in our election. Um, All these kind of political events that have transpired in the last year that as I was deep into editorial um, on the film and uh, with this story um, that shows... um, what Russia is willing to do on a, on a global level, and how it, gonna, yeah, and how intertwined all of these things are. When you understand the the context around Putin going into into the Ukraine, the idea that Olympic medals are just sport gets thrown out the window, and you understand the geopolitical implications of what it means to. Uh, as a country to be successful at the Olympics and how that can embolden and empower a leader of that, of that kind of that stature as Putin. And where does it go from there? You know, and, and I want to get into, you know, the, the, the election meddling and all of that. We're jumping all over the timeline. though. <laughs> I want to get into, I, I think we should, should we go back and just talk about what the doping protocol was like and what happened through that? Sure. Yeah. In, uh, in regards to, uh, Russia, or just in, I want to sort of track um, your experience on this doping protocol, and then like what happened to you personally, and then and then get back into like Gregory and the larger story. Well, I uh, I had been on a protocol um, for about nine months leading up to this Hot route, and Gregory was advising me what to take and, and when to take it and how much he came to Los Angeles. He smuggles back all my frozen urine, uh-huh. uh, basically, so he can test in his laboratory my washout period, essentially. You know, at what point will I be clean? How much can I take? Um, what exactly can I take, can I not take to avoid detection? And... Um, and I go and I do this second race. Um, in the film, I don't get into the specifics because I 
uh, I technically don't do as well. Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of variables. I had had a crash. I had a flat tire. Um, my electronic shifting broke on a day, and I lost an hour. But I truly um, had was recovering, which was pretty uh, amazing in regards to all these hormones that I was taking that um, on a performance-enhancing level, um, this stuff works. I mean, I was, I was recovering. I wasn't faster. I wasn't, you know, a different athlete, but I was able to go out and put in a, uh, an extraordinary effort and beat myself, you know, uh, to a pulp. But the next day I was recovering a lot better than mm -hmm. I had, um, without, um, uh, the PEDs. And, um, so I, uh, and it was basically EPO, HGH and testosterone. Yeah. EPO, HGH, testosterone, uh, HCG, uh, to supplement the testosterone. We're going to go off of that, uh, thyroid to increase my metabolism, uh, DHEA, um, uh, all sorts of different vitamin injections, folic acid, B12, um, combination of different, um, uh, different vitamins that I were doing. Um, I'm trying to think what else I took. Um, yeah, that was, and that went on for how long? For about, uh, nine months, nine months, nine months. Right. And you know, we off and on, and then we taper and figure out kind of how to do that. And I was getting my blood tested to build a biological passport for myself. And, um, so it was kind of trying to, to do everything that I could, uh, to create kind of what this would be like, um, had I been being tested, um, uh, by, uh, by WADA. And Gregory is, is basically saying, I'm going to figure out the testing. We're going to get these vials of blood back to my lab in Russia. And that's where we're going to do the testing. Yes. Yes. I, we're going to get my, uh, my urine back mm -hmm. to Russia urine, and then, yeah. and then I'm going to bring him all my urine from the second race, the Hot route two, uh, which I did bring to him, uh, in, in Russia after the second race. And he was then going to test to see if in fact I was clean, uh, or not, if I was positive or not. And in everything that he was building before he basically is forced to resign from the lab and this whole investigation breaks. Um, it was looking like I was, would have feasibly evaded positive detection. Mm -hmm. And your experience of being on, you know, being on the protocol, was that like, was it what you expected or was it different than what you expected? Like clearly it works, but it didn't make you feel like Superman when you were out training and it didn't work. It wasn't like a magic bullet in this Hope Root race. You had all these other challenges. I think setting aside the mechanicals and all of that though there were like your i think you said your last day you were just crushing it <clears throat> you were yeah. able to like just feel great every single day had the race gone on another week or two maybe you should have done the 21 day for that yeah i mean <laughs> it, it's funny because yeah. as i as i finished that race uh the second time and and in the first year that i had done it um i was pretty i was blown apart i mean i couldn't i couldn't walk for a couple of weeks mm. after that race i mean i i had uh, i had developed some pretty severe achilles tendonitis i'd had hip dysplasia i i was just blown apart going into that race in seven days and even though i had been training uh you know before that it's not 
nobody's walking into that thing unless you've put right. in a lot of time on the bike. And um, But physically, I was blown apart. And the second year, um, by the time the last day comes around, I actually finish with the leaders. Like I'm in like the, the group, uh, the guy wins and, and one other guy's a few minutes ahead. But then I'm just right in the chase group on the last day. And it was... Uh, and I came out of that going, wow, if there was a day eight, a day nine, a right. day 10, I was, I was starting to make up this, a lot of this time that I lost. I, I certainly would have never won the race, but I think I probably would have ended up, you know, had nothing happened, I probably would have been 10th. And had the race continued for another week, who knows, maybe I would have jumped up to like eighth or something like that. And, and knowing what you know now, uh, having immersed yourself in this world, do you, I mean, do you think any of the other guys that you were racing against were, were doping? I mean, this is an amateur race. In, in that but, race, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because they're amateur and because the system was not well monitored there. And the strange thing about sport is I think so much of it is just for the personal glory. Uh, you know, you, it, it's hard to understand, but, you know, as a, amateur athletes at that level are incredibly competitive and very serious and especially anybody who's going over to Europe to go do a seven day race through the French Alps and leave their families and go train hundreds of hours on their bike um, I think is a lot the same mentality of guys who will want to win yeah. at all costs. It is weird though like you know it's not your profession you're not making you know it's yeah. it's, it's just I can't fathom doing that and yet i'm not naive and i know that there are a lot of people who are doing that and and wasn't there one guy <clears throat> who holds all kinds of strava records yeah. all over the so alps the, and the Pyrenees. so the guy who had uh uh who actually won uh the hot and i think he's won it five years in a row or something um his name's peter pooley nice guy um, and uh, if you look on Strava, I don't know with the e-bikes and stuff, what may or may have not changed, but this guy essentially holds the KOM up every single major climb in the Alps, the Pyrenees, the Dolomites. And if you scratch into his background, he was actually he's French. He was in a couple Tour de France's, got caught for doping. And instead of serving his sentence, he retires and goes become, becomes a cycling ambassador for Thailand and lives in Thailand and is like sponsored <laughs> by Singa Beer yeah. and, by the, and by the government of Thailand to be their cycling ambassador. Um, and this guy has been killing the, the Hote route. That and these said, are all the climbs that are on all the Grand Tours. Oh, yeah. Like I every mean, great rider. Oh, yeah. This, this, guy, this, guy, this guy's got times up these climbs to rival... Froome and whoever close to it yeah he's not, he's yeah. of that caliber um and uh but i mean what a gifted athlete i think he won again this year i mean mm -hmm. and that's the thing that i think a lot of people um forget in this argument is um i don't know whether or not uh peter pooley uh was or was not taking substances even though you know if i look at his past you could certainly make an argument um, that he was um, or is. But on the other hand, it certainly doesn't negate that this guy is an extraordinary athlete. All the drugs in the world were still not going to make me Peter Pooley. And having, I mean, and having experienced that firsthand, having gone through the protocol, like does that does it change how you look at someone like Lance Armstrong and the, you know the seven tours? I think I think look, 
first of all, I, I think that um, that cheating is wrong if you're going in and, and subscribing to a set of rules. So these rules are put in place um, because it's trying to create um, a level playing field, at least in the regards of, hey, um, you're not going to take something that I'm not going to take uh, that can give you an edge over me if all things are considered equal. And, you know, and that is kind of the, the, the ongoing battle of, of clean sport, where um, on an ethical or moral level, um, I, I very much support clean sport. I think that if you're going into to race in the Tour de France, I'd like to believe that everybody is, is clean and may the best man win or the best genetic mutant uh, win. And then the flip side of that is you have the constant game of science and, and, and human evolution and medical evolution and technology, which, which is never going to change. There's mm. always going to be, you know, another, another substance out there. There's always going to be um, another experiment. And all you got to do is pick up any science journal every day. And there's been countless articles written about the athletes of the future. And, and, and it's the same kind of, you know, reality that we're facing that my iPhone seven is now obsolete because there's an iPhone eight. Things um, are going to get really weird pretty soon. You know, we're on the cusp of all kinds of insane breakthroughs and this gestalt of technology, you know, is only speeding up. And so, you know, when you look through the lens of, you know, genetic engineering and being able to, you know, select the expression of certain genes, um, you know, where are we going to draw the line in terms of what's kosher and what's not? And what does it mean to be on an even playing field? Well, this, this conversation um, is going to continue. Um, it's, it's never going to stop is so long as there's hundreds of billions of dollars at stake in, in the world of professional sports. And I think that the conversation is, is going to have to continually evolve because it's the reality of it. I mean, right now, if you've got a couple hundred thousand dollars and in the embryo stage, you can change the eye color of your kid. You can see to it that that your child is going to be six feet instead of uh, five five eight. You and can so why not go in and change this the sex of your baby essentially? Yeah. I mean, there's and why not create a child who's going to naturally produce more EPO in their system than the ordinary kid, or whose lungs are going to be more efficient at at uptaking oxygen or what have you? You can create this athlete and is that okay is that not okay and if you read in medical science journals and all that technology is 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 either there right now or it's on the cusp of being there and so you know we're we're, we're heading into a whole other future that is really outside of kind of i think what um the the creators of the anti-doping system in sport and WADA could have ever predicted because we're heading into a land of yeah. of unknowns far beyond the pharmacology of it. Uh, we're going into, you know, actually going in and being able to, to modify your genetic uh, makeup. And that's going to present a whole other set of 
problems, conundrums, whatever you want to call it, uh, as, as sport continues to evolve. It is weird that, you know, it, understandably there's a rule you cannot take testosterone exogenously like that would be a violation of this protocol but if you were to take some kind of ayurvedic herb that stimulates your body's ability to naturally produce that that's okay well right, right. So, i mean you're 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 dealing in a, a, a world of gray areas which was um, under the original film that i set out to make I was going to explore these gray areas, these ideas of, okay, you can have a, uh, if you've got $15,000, you can be sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber tent, mm -hmm. essentially, where your body is right. going to naturally create more erythropoietin, but you can't inject erythropoietin. Um, you know, and, and I could go on for hours about all these kind of gray areas, um, but ultimately it's, it's, I think just human nature that we want to be the best at, at things. And if you're competitive in anything that you do, whether you're a real estate developer or, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. You're, you know, you're a businessman, you're a software programmer. You're always trying to figure out how to be the best at that. And along with that in sports comes, you know, trying to figure out how to, to have that extra advantage. And it's not always mm -hmm. about taking drugs. It's all sorts of other uh, variables that come into place. Yeah, and I think that it, it extends beyond, like if you presume the testing agencies are well-intentioned and that this system is, it's just inherently flawed because it can't keep up and technology is moving too fast, that's one thing. But you also have to kind of take a look at the interplay between WADA and USADA and the IOC and, you know, the FBI and the DOJ, like there's this cabal, this sort of like, you know, relationship that exists between all of these that, <clears throat> you know, it's just not on the, on the level, right? Like, and how, like, I'm always confused between USADA and WADA and the IOC and who has authority and who's in charge of this and how does all of this work and how do they communicate with each other but it just seems like a gigantic clusterfuck. Well that was as I got into this system um, and the exploring of this that is what became not only clear it was just a, a being beaten over the head by it on a daily basis of all the conflicts of interest and all the um, you know, uh, all these organizations are intertwined and the finances are intertwined. And, um, you know, and, it, and it's increasingly um, complex because you realize at the end of the day, it is about the business. Mm -hmm. And the athlete, the individual athlete, isn't necessarily um, the person who's going to be protected. It's really about... Um, what is in the best interest of the Olympic organization. And despite, let's say, what they're putting forward as a public message of, of integrity and fair play and clean sport and following the rules and unity and all this stuff, at the end of the day, it's about business. Yeah. Yeah, it's about what city's going to bid on the Olympics, the billions of dollars that go into it. And they're not looking out for the individual interest of the athlete, they're looking out for their business model and their business model punishing Russia doesn't work and their business model catching athletes 
doesn't work. And their business model truly fighting for, for clean sport doesn't work. Those are all counterproductive to to the business model of the actual Olympics. Right. So the IOC is, you know, arguably their mission statement is promoting, you know, the, the these ideals of the Olympics and fair sport, et cetera. Um, but it is a gigantic business. And, you know, this gets played out in the film and we're jumping ahead a little bit. But there's that there's that thing that occurs and it's not really completely fleshed out in the movie, but in the wake of of you know, all of this evidence that you're on the receiving end of from Gregory and, and turning it over to WADA and having them investigate, it becomes clear that I think there's like a thousand athletes at Sochi that were complicit and arguably positive. And a thousand then, athletes on uh, not just not Sochi, but a thousand uh, Russian athletes across across, program, across right. all sport, across all the sport. Yeah. And and then okay, so what is the what is going to be the, the the punishment for that? And they're fa- you know Russia's facing not being able to participate in Rio, right? Was it, it was Rio? Well, the Rio games, and now the question is uh, the Winter Games in uh, Pyeongchang right. in South Korea. But there was a moment where it looks like Russia's out. And then suddenly, like a couple months later, rushes back in. So like, yeah, what's going on in the back channel there that that decision gets made the way that it gets made? Well, we're, we're seeing this go on. And, um, and Gregory uh, wrote um, an op-ed uh, to the New York Times. We were able through his lawyers uh, that he was able to submit an op-ed to the New York Times because nobody's heard from him since well he's in witness since protection. he's brought into protective custody of, in july of last year and gregory wrote the op-ed um because essentially all the the work that he did uh to bring this evidence forward and this evidence was all proven beyond a reasonable doubt this was forensically proven by richard mclaren um is essentially being disputed by the Olympic Committee itself, which just wants to sweep this under the carpet. WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, is literally uh, questioning the veracity of the findings of the man that they put in charge to lead the investigation, who works with Interpol, who works with all these outside agencies, who proves everything forensically, scientifically, uh, et cetera, et cetera, but they're trying to poke holes in in his report and you have the russian ministry no matter how much evidence has been presented still completely denying not only that any of this happened denying the existence of a state-sponsored doping program denying you know what is thousands of documents of evidence that Mm -hmm. gregory put forward and and you're seeing that on all sides of the equation from the World Anti-Doping Agency to the Olympics and, and of course, Russia, uh, that there is really no resolve to take accountability for this spectacular fraud that happened, that, that cheated every single clean athlete who went into those Olympic Games over the last 40 years under the belief that the rules were being upheld under the belief that they were playing on a level playing field. And you're seeing that the actual organizations that are in charge of, of, of enforcing the rules 
really are going to do nothing that is actually in the best interest of the clean athletes and only protect their own business interests. Um, and so it's it's been pretty... It's very disheartening. Disheartening because what it is doing is it's setting a, a message. It's sending a message to every athlete who grows up believing in the Olympic ideal that, you know, as a kid, I know that I had this or anybody who was really serious about sport, you grow up and believing in this Olympic dream that you're going to somehow go to the Olympics and you're competing under peace and harmony. And it doesn't matter whether you're Russian or American or from India or from China, the world is coming together to compete. And it's all in the spirit of sport. And then what I've come to realize and what the film shows is what George Orwell clearly said is that sport is war without the weapons. And these Olympic Games or World Cup soccer, etc., are essentially just a place for a country to go to war with each other and assert its geopolitical and, and power through sport. Right. And these athletes are, in essence, gladiators for their country. And the case of Russia and this program that went for 40 years in the case of the Sochi Olympics, Russia has been using its sport program to assert itself geopolitically and show dominance and power. So if you can go in and win the Olympics, you're actually showing that you're strong, mm -hmm. that you're powerful. And, and those Olympic medals are almost in place of its, of its nuclear warheads or what it can do on a geopolitical level. And, and that is what countries are viewing the Olympic Games as. It's not about a country going in and competing peacefully and in harmony of it's sport. It's about hegemony. It's about, it's about going in and you look at those Beijing Olympics in China. And, and Gregory has told me repeatedly that he got the idea to swap out the urine essentially from the Chinese at the Beijing Olympics. Now, these are allegations. I have no knowledge of this. But according to Gregory, according to what Gregory told me, is that the, in China, the way that the system was set up is that the athletes who were reporting for the drug testing, the Chinese athletes would go and report to essentially Chinese agents. And these agents would give these athletes clean urine. So when they went in to be tested and they, you know, and, and there's an inspector there watching them essentially pee, uh, that, that these athletes had been given clean urine. And that's why uh, none of the Chinese athletes tested mm -hmm. positive. And if you look at the Beijing Olympics, China swept the Beijing mm -hmm. Olympics. They right. won more medals than any other country. But you again, you look at the geopolitics of that and what was on the line for China. It was China's coming out party to the world. It's 2008 and China is showing that not only can they pull off an Olympics and those Olympic games were incredible what they did with the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies. We've never seen anything like that in Olympic history. Not only can they pull off the Olympics, not only are they a global superpower, but they can win. And if they can win in sport and they can win in Olympics, what does this say about business? What does this say about war? What does this say about military strength, et cetera, et cetera? And you look at that and then you draw the analogy to Sochi or all the other games. You know, of course, the, 
you know, the, the, the 1936 games in, in Berlin was one of the, the pivotal moments in, in the rise of, of the Third Reich mm-hmm. and, and, and of German nationalism and pride. And Hitler used those games to consolidate his power. And so we're seeing the, the, the replicating that in each one of these games where a country is using these games to basically assert itself on a geopolitical level. Yeah, and there's no there's no political will for the truth to come out because the stakes are too high and the ramifications of that would be too disruptive. But when you see a situation like you've presented in the film where the evidence is so overpowering and clear cut and you have to butt up against a lack of that will, um, you can't help but walk away from that feeling a little bit hopeless about what the future may hold because these organizations that we've specifically vested with the authority and the responsibility of policing this, if they're not even, if they're showing disinterest or they're not going to actually, um, you know, act on it in the way that, you know, seems to be the morally appropriate response, then we're lost. And we're only talking about the Olympics. We're not even talking about tennis or the NBA or the NFL and, you know, the implications of, you know, unfair play on the professional level across the board. Well, I, well, I think that to me, um, the bigger takeaway is sport is sport and sport is always going to be a game in the sense that it is sport. I mean, as so long as you're paying NBA players $40 million a year to shoot a basket with the bat, you know, uh, and, and, and so long as you're playing, you know, NFL athletes, whatever, 25, $30 million a year to play football, there is always going to be, uh, the, the pressures to win. But, but to me, the, the, the bigger issue that we have to look at and what I want people to take away from this film is looking at, are, are we, as a country, the United States or other countries willing to tolerate a foreign powers meddling in our process, in our democracy, in our, in our political affairs. And what you see in Icarus, in this film, beyond a reasonable doubt, is a country meddling into the global affairs of A, the, the Olympics and sport to cheat and to collude and to uh, and to create a fraud and B the analogy can clearly be drawn into our current U.S. political climate and the and the meddling into our election of okay if a country like Russia was willing to do this to win medals what else are they willing to do how far are they willing mm-hmm. to go and what we're seeing is no matter how much evidence is put forward which we see in the film where not only has this evidence been put forward, it's all been proven. And yet you still have the leaders of the Olympics and, 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 and Putin and Russia and WADA literally standing in the face of this evidence trying to deny that this actually happened. And we're seeing the same thing happen in, our, in the current U.S. Uh, political situation where no matter how much evidence is being put forward about about election tampering and meddling, we're still getting naysayers. We're still getting people going, this didn't happen. And I think we have to, as a country, 
and a world go, wait, what are we willing to tolerate? Meaning if we're willing to tolerate this in sport, well, I guess we're willing to tolerate this in terms of our own uh, election, in terms of our own political process. We're willing to allow a foreign power to come in and meddle in our affairs and have that meddling go unpunished. And that to me is kind of the takeaway of Icarus that is incredibly upsetting, where all of this evidence is presented and you still have the president of Russia going, not only did this not happen, I don't even remember the guy's name who who brought all this evidence forward. And not only do we know that this is not true, we just know it's an outright lie. And these are the the, the takeaways for me from from the film that uh, that that are frightening. And he's and they're still permitted to send athletes in the Olympics. Right That's now, right. You know what I mean? You framed the the film kind of using, you know, George Orwell in 1984 to kind of <clears throat> create an architecture around the themes, but permeating, you know, beneath that in every frame of this movie is the question of the 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 validity of truth in our culture, right? And that's something that's being called into question in in, in a very present and dangerous way at the moment like how valuable is truth you present truth and what is you know what what are the consequences of telling the truth and and what is our cultural response to being told the, the truth and what is our responsibility to do with that truth well that's that's exactly right and what and what, and what we see in the film is that it appears that the, the consequences for truth uh are 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 high and in the case of gregory which is deeply concerning to me on a personal level and on a bigger level is he wrote that op-ed to the new york times a week ago which i encourage anyone listening to this podcast to to read his new york times op-ed uh stating about essentially the 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 crisis of truth and what is and and despite all the evidence that he's put forward his concerns and and uh two days ago uh russia issues a warrant for his arrest on top of seizing his assets uh in russia atop on of his criminal charges awaiting him in russia uh, taking the home of his daughter taking the passports of his family um, taking, uh, they're now in a battle to take his wife's apartment. And you're sitting there going, wait. So the man who came forward with the truth is, this, is going to be the man who is punished for telling the truth. And that's really, really frightening. And that's something that we have to be worried about as, as a planet. Because of the consequences of telling the truth are are your imprisonment, your punishment for trying to bring forward a story that needed to be told to the world. Um, that's, that's, that's concerning. Yeah. I mean, on a, on a really, really big level. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm really worried, uh, uh, for him in that regard that, that instead of, um, 
being exalted for telling the truth. Uh, he is being uh, uh, demonized for telling the truth. And we're in a and we're in a in a news cycle and a world cycle that is that is allowing this. Um, literally uh, two weeks ago, uh, Russia puts out a, a news statement through the RT uh, and through Sputnik News that WADA was willing to drop all the charges against Russia, that Richard McLaren had found errors in his report, and that uh, and that and that they believed that Russia should be uh, reinstated to competition and allowed into the Winter Games. None of this wow. was true. This was fake wow. news, 100% fake news. Yet it was picked up by all the uh, global newspapers as as truth. And so here was here is this crystal clear example. And and we're of course seeing in regards to our own election and everything. We're reading these stories out of Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. But here firsthand, I'm watching this story. I'm reading this report and going, not only is this true, not true, this is a fake news story. And it was picked up by newspapers all over the world. Mm -hmm. And the next day, Richard McLaren is out there making statements going, this is not true. And yet that story was picked up. Yeah, the the news has moved on. Exactly. Right. And we should point out for the listener, just so we're clear, like Gregory comes to the United States to work with you and he bring in, in, in the wake of this McLaren report that comes out, um, that's basically indicating that there is all of this fraud going on in Russia. Um, he brings with him all of these hard drives that you guys, uh, begin to, you know, you, you hide them in safety in safe places and you start to get into all of this stuff and realize like this is all the evidence of what is happening and through a kind of a drawn out process make this decision to turn these materials over to the New York Times hence turning Gregory into sort of a, a Snowden like figure <clears throat> that then you know he's he's in danger his his life is at risk and ultimately he ends up in protective custody which is where he remains today um, <clears throat> do you and 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 this New York Times article comes out there's a lot of news around this uh, and a lot of discussion and obviously blowback on Russia that they've survived. But, you know, it didn't look good for Putin for all of this to come out. Do you when you look at uh, the last election cycle, how do you think about the relationship between that scandal that you were you know, at ground zero for and being involved in that New York Times story? Uh, do you see a relationship between that? And Putin deciding to roll up his sleeves and start meddling in our election process, in our democratic process. Like, do you think there's any logic in saying, well, oh, yeah, you're going to screw with me this way? Like, let me show you how I, how, you know, what I can do. Well, you know, I, I don't know because I'm not a, uh, <laughs> I'm not privy to the knowledge that the FBI or CIA or NSA has, um, in January of this year, they, they released their declassified report into the mm-hmm. election uh, meddling, and they listed seven reasons as to why they believed our election was hacked. And reason three they listed was for what Putin or Russia viewed as the U.S. involvement in the doping scandal and the Panama Papers. And, and what was meant by that is that because Rochenkov essentially had come to the United States on a visa, because the story was brought to the New York Times, which is an American paper, and because the Department of Justice and FBI um, launched an investigation, 
And because uh, Rodchenkov was put into protective custody uh, by American authorities, um, that, that Russia believed that the United States apparently was trying to embarrass uh, Russia and was behind uh, essentially the breaking of this scandal, which is not true. That's not what happened at all. But um, clearly, I think you can think within that mentality of that government why you would uh, perhaps believe um, that the United States might have been involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gregory was certainly acting uh, not only on his own volition, but on his own um, ethical and moral compass of just having a, uh, uh, a desire insatiable desire that he had to bring this story public that that it was so important that this story uh was known and Mm -hmm. that and that the world knew that this had happened um but uh you know i think i think what we're seeing now which is in in the fallout of this um election meddling is that the film shows without a, a question of a doubt, the extent to which Russia's willing to go, um, A, to conceal truth and to deny accountability, and B, um, uh, of, 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 of perpetrating a fraud to essentially advance their own geopolitical interests. And in this case, they were using sport to do that. And in the case of, as it, appears to be and in our election process they were using you know uh fake news and ads and all sorts of other methods of of infiltrating our society to try to help uh assist um you know the current administration uh to be elected at least is what is being alleged Mm -hmm. um and uh, and if i'm looking at what i know at least in regards to the Icarus story and the story behind the Olympic doping scandal and Russia's um, involvement of this in the last 40 years, um, it's not that far of a leap to, uh, uh, to, to believe um, that, that this is happening. It's unbelievable. There are so many uh, strings to pull. I, I, I just I can't imagine the job of trying to edit this movie because there's so many other stories that you could pursue. And I would imagine uh, there were a lot of threads that you pulled that ended up on the cutting room floor. So, you know, if, if, if length and time was not a limitation on this project, on this movie, where would this exploration lead you next? I mean, does it lead you to USADA to the IOC? Does it lead you directly to Putin? Like, where do you go? You know, it's funny, you know, as we were going through editing, um, my, my editors, there was a time where I had, uh, four assistant editors and three main editors. I mean, we had seven editors because it it was so much footage and so much. And then I had, uh, people just pulling archival footage and and it was just this this team and all of us and and my producing partner Dan Kogan and and also my uh, investors that became producers on the project we were also emotionally invested and, and personally invested in the story that 
And there were so many areas of essentially fraud and wrongdoing. You know, you, you could go down the rabbit hole. And, and, and I remember through this process, I went, wow, we could, we could pick a hundred fights. Yeah. And, and every single thing is, is compelling in and of itself. And I remember that, that, that we went through everything from in the beginning of the film where I was going to, as part of my journey, show how the National Football League, how the, how the testing system in the NFL is a joke and how it's basically been put together by the players' union and the owners' union to essentially yeah. create a system that appears that there's anti-doping in the NFL, while essentially all these guys are just allowed to do whatever they want to do. And no one cares. Right. And no one was cares. cares and, anyway. I was, and I was going to explore how basketball essentially doesn't even have uh, in the anti-doping system, and anytime any basketball is questioned about that, they they go to you know the the layers of the uh, levels of abuse within the NBA uh, uh, and all these other you know social problems. So I was going to initially explore and how tennis and I could go on and on and on about all these different sports and federations, how their systems are highly inadequate. So there was that story that I realized essentially had to drop away because we didn't have time in the mm -hmm. film to tell that story there was the story of of wada where i could have went deep into the rabbit hole mm -hmm. of that where where wada had been receiving information for four years from the initial russian whistleblowers vitalia and yulia uh, stepanov who had been going to wada telling them hey there's a state-sponsored program in russia and wada doesn't do anything about it for years. And I mean, even the scene in the movie, though, when you're there and you're like, right. here it all is. Right. And they're kind of like, yeah. okay, like, what are we supposed to do? And exactly. like our, you know, and, 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 and so I'm, so we had, you know, there could have been a whole film on, on, on that. And, and there were other Russians coming to water over the years and years. And, and even mm -hmm. the fact that, that Don Catlin refers me to Gregory Rachankov because Catlin knows that, that the Russians are up to right. no good. And, Do you think that and, he knew, like, in the back of his mind that, like, if he, if he got you with Gregory, that you would start to get, get a glimpse of what was actually happening? Uh, he had no idea. I don't think anybody could have imagined what they had done at Sochi. The, the, the bottle-swapping operation, I think, just was mind-boggling that it went to that level. But he certainly knew that Russia had not been playing by the mm -hmm. rules, as well as I think pretty much any scientists in the world of anti-doping in the lab system. There was they 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 knew in theory that you know things were not being upheld because of how the system was structured. So you know I could have went on a, a multi-part series on on WADA and how the IOC. Uh, co-funds WADA and all the conflicts of interest and how the president of WADA sits on the board and is the vice president of the IOC. And I mean, it's I could like go on for hours. You know, I, could, I could have done a huge expose on the Olympics and, and all the politics within there and, and, and the stories that Gregory has told me and that he even has knowledge and information about of, I mean, all these various Olympic cover-ups and mm. all these uh you know uh the problems within that organization i could have i could have went down that rabbit hole but ultimately the the story that needed to be told 
And the film for me was not going to be a, a multi-part series. It wasn't going to be a, an explorative, uh, exploratory expose on all the injustices in the in the sporting world. But to me, the the biggest story of the film and what had to be told was Gregory's journey, and this journey that ultimately leads him to being a whistleblower ultimately leads to exposing the single biggest scandal in sport history, the single biggest scandal in Olympic history, and ultimately the takeaway of that, which in the film we craft in the world of Orwell, which is the world of doublethink, which is essentially doing one thing and saying the exact opposite. And that was essentially Gregory's life and everything that's been going on within the larger sporting world of saying that you're upholding integrity and values and clean sport while doing nothing about actually doing that or uh, presenting you know uh, a test that is the anti-doping test while at the same time you've developed the anti-venom to the test and 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 these were the the larger takeaways of of the film that that became important in that story that we needed to tell and so we had to editorially lose anything in that process that wasn't going on that journey of gregory's story and the exposing of this scandal uh to the world um and so there was so much that that is on the cutting room floor that I guess could make myriads of series. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, Gregory is the ultimate cipher because <clears throat> he's so likable and you can connect with him and, and people, the audience, I think can connect with your relationship with him. You know, it could have very easily turned out that this guy was unlikable or just completely unsympathetic. But the fact that he is so jocular, like you, you just want, you want him to be okay despite the flaws and the actions that he's taken. And so it allows the audience member to open up to this story and receive it in a way that I think somebody other than Gregory would not have been able to deliver. Yeah, I mean, he's, uh, I mean, that's the, uh, you know, I guess the conundrum of Gregory. On, on one hand, you love him and he is the most lovable likable character i think you're likely uh you know gonna encounter uh in a in a documentary in a in quite some time he's just has this way about him that you love and at the same time he has spent his life being involved in a very complicated um scandal and and concealing um what was a institutional conspiracy uh, to cheat sport and the Olympics. And his redemption um, is breaking free of that system that he was a part of and bringing that story to the world. It doesn't change what happened. It doesn't change the history. Um, it doesn't change that he um, was a part of these, I guess, you know, what you would call sporting crimes or fraud. But his coming forward um, sets the record straight. And without him and without his 
willingness to to bring this story forward, the world would never know this. I mean, this this story lived and died ultimately in Gregory's hands. He was the only person on planet Earth to this day that had this evidence because even everybody else working in the laboratory, they had pieces and parts. They didn't have the actual evidence, and Gregory mm -hmm. did. And the other two guys in Russia who both died of heart attacks, even they were not involved in the laboratory level. They knew of the system going on. They knew of how the system was operating, but they weren't in the, the lab level, the scientific level where this story could be proven. So, so, the, so this story lived and died with Gregory, and ultimately uh, Gregory made a spectacular sacrifice, not only to leave his family, but uh, to have an unknown fate going forward in, into the world. Uh, and and the risks that he took uh, to bring this story forward are pretty pretty remarkable. And so I felt a, a huge um, burden on one hand and, and an honor on the other um, to be able to to tell this story that um, and and bring this story forward, um, which is uh, there was never a question in, in my mind or my team's mind as to um, whether or not we wanted to to help him uh, mm -hmm. tell this story. Were you ever in a situation in which a conflict of interest presented itself? In other words, what's in the best interest of the firm or the firm, the, the film versus what's in Gregory's best interest in terms of kind of navigating these decisions about the New York Times and the investigation and all of that? You know, because Gregory and I truly um, have a friendship, had a friendship, um, there was a period of time for about seven months where he comes to Los Angeles between us breaking the story to the New York Times, where it was we were filming when we were making a movie still, but it was beside the point of of the gravitas of what we were sitting on and understanding that we were sitting on this evidence and this knowledge and this wealth of information that was, in my opinion, in Gregory's opinion, and my producer's opinion, incredibly important that 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 the world needed to have this information. And so it became how do we navigate this in the best interest of Gregory and all the clean athletes who needed this information and in the best interests of, of, of seeing to it that this story came forward and that the truth was told rather than in the interests of the film or, um, or perhaps what could have been you know, financial interests. Mm -hmm. and, and we had moments where we were going, okay, do we just bring this information forward in the film? And we realized that, that if we did that, that it would maybe serving the film's purpose and the explosive nature of these allegations in the, in the film, but it wasn't going to be serving Gregory's purpose. It wasn't going to be serving the greater good's purpose because what would happen is we'd bring that story forward and then everybody would attack it. And then the right. film would be on the defensive as something explosive and who knows whether or not that story could have been proven. 
So, you know, myself and my producing team and Gregory, we said, no, that's not the way to do it. And the way that the best way to do this, and we didn't have faith in the United States government as, as that investigation heated up because who knows what the U.S. Right. government was going to do with this information and they didn't, what were they going to do with it? They don't have international jurisdiction to be able to go retest urine samples that are being held by the Olympics. So, so we made a collective series of decisions, but each one of those decisions that we made, at least in my opinion, we were looking at what is in the best interest of Gregory, of how to protect him, how to see to it that, that this story is, is, is truthfully told, and what is in the best interest of the sporting world to have this information and to have this knowledge, and how can we see to it that that this story is not that this story is not covered up, that it can be proven. And so by going to the New York Times, we were essentially allowing this story that it that was a blessing and, and a burden to to leave our control and to allow uh, the authorities uh, who could truly investigate this and prove this to take over. And we knew that if we went to the New York Times that it was going to be impartial in its judgment and that it wasn't going to be um, a, a story for the tabloids. It was, it was now a news story. And if we could, and if we could navigate a news story, then there was, there was a chance that, uh, that everything that Gregory had brought forward, which myself and my producing team uh, really had no question ad, as to the veracity of it, whether or not it was true. Right. It was how do we bring it forward? It had to be terrifying as soon as that uh, was published, though. But Gregory seemed pretty chill about the whole thing, at least on film. He, uh, he was chill. And the interesting thing about Gregory is he's said to me many times, is, as I personally was in the middle of this crisis and going, oh, my God, what have you gotten yourself into, Brian? Uh, what have you got your partners and your investors into yeah. and you're you know like this is safe your, houses your, and right, you're, deposit you're like, boxes what are you and... doing you're in over your head and i certainly um felt that many times um and gregory always felt that and i think he does to this day that every day he's alive is an extra day that he was not going to be alive <laughs> should he have stayed in in russia that's an excellent and, perspective and he viewed himself that he was essentially dead man walking and so every day that 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 he's alive and i think he has this belief right now today that every day that he's alive is another day that he wouldn't have been alive um had um had he not made the yeah. the choices he made, and so um, I think he's looking at it from a different perspective. That he, um, in many ways, um, got to live on borrowed time, where I think um, myself and my creative and producing team uh, had a uh, a consistent, um, you know, feeling of of overwhelming. Uh, um, gravity to what was being presented to us because we were not the ones who were personally 
involved in the years of, yeah. of, of this conspiracy. We have to land this plane, um, but before we do, uh, is he okay? Like, what's the status of the investigation? What is the future prognosis for what's going to happen to him? Well, uh, the Department of Justice and uh, FBI still have their ongoing investigation into the into the doping scandal, into the uh, uh, you know his his evidence, and I think they haven't decided yet if they're going to bring a case, and and if they do, who they would bring that case against. Um, he is okay uh, right now. Um, we launched uh, Fair Sport. Uh, dot org. Um, uh, one of uh, uh, my uh, uh, producers uh, in the film launched an organization called FairSport.org, uh, a nonprofit. Um, was essentially launched to help protect whistleblowers in sport, and also to help continue to uh, protect and navigate um, uh, Gregory's well-being. And, um, and this organization is trying to, um, A, see to it that there is some justice that is done uh, based on you know, the evidence that is brought forward and also help uh, protect athletes' rights that, were, um, that had medals taken from them, uh, try to help athletes um, you know, stand up to uh, uh, authorities that are not you know, operating in their best interests but also really help uh, other whistleblowers in sport, people like Gregory, who might have a story to tell. And to that extent, um, we established a GoFundMe for Gregory um, that if any of your listeners are on the site can go and find That's great. Um, on GoFundMe. And the hope is, is that we can raise enough money to continue to uh, assist Gregory in his well-being because... Um, the future right now for him is unknown, and it's uh, and it's deeply concerning on a lot of levels. And uh, uh, and we're hoping that that he's okay now, and he's going to be okay in a year from now. And he's going to be okay in another year from now. And the question of how and when when he'll ever be reunited with his family, if ever, uh, is lingering. And as you see from Russia's response and that New York Times op-ed and, and what you see in the film is that this story is far from over. It was, we had a moment where we were capturing essentially um, history as it was unfolding and it's still unfolding and we're still seeing the unfolding of this on our daily news cycle uh, in regards to Russia and in regards to what is going on and in, in our current political climate and so this story is not is yeah. not done this is not this is not past history it's it was unfolding history current history and now future history as to what will happen for sport in the olympic and the olympic movement what it will happen to gregory and his life and his livelihood and his family and his well-being and what our country and other countries of the world are going to essentially tolerate or not tolerate uh, from our leaders and whether or not we're going to allow this continual cycle of fake news and, and Orwellian doublethink 1984 thinking to, uh, to perpetuate uh, our society and to continue and, and whether or not we're going to take action against that. 
on that note, you you went to Congress, right, and spoke. So what was that like, and and how does that have you feeling in the wake of that? Does it make you optimistic that we can have that discussion and create change, or no? Um, well, I I, uh, I I spent a few days in Washington uh, about a month and a half ago meeting with the chiefs of staff of a number of bipartisan Senate offices, and all of them were very interested in looking at the film and perhaps doing uh, hearings, perhaps doing screenings. Um, I don't know what's going to uh, happen with that or not. That's, that is uh, hopefully uh, in the works, but that experience was surreal. And the one at least takeaway that I felt in speaking to whether it was a Republican office or a Democrat office, that I saw a mutual interest um, from, from an American perspective to, um, to try to see to it that not only um, does what the evidence that is presented in the film as far as this spectacular conspiracy to, to cheat sport not continue, but also that, that the United States interest to see to it that there is some sort of change in the system that, that what potentially happened in the last election uh, doesn't repeat itself again. And um, there certainly seemed to be a very um, mutual shared interest in that. And I guess history will determine um, whether or not something is ultimately done or not done. But uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty, um, a pretty uh, scary story when you really start thinking about the bigger implications behind it. It's strange times that we live in, and it truly is Orwellian in many ways, and truth is under attack. And I think it's never been more uh, important for us to be discerning about the news that we consume and, uh, and our responsibility to, to, uh, to speak the truth and to speak truth to power. And that's certainly what you've done in this film, and it's <clears throat> quite amazing. So... For people that have not seen it, uh, I strongly suggest you check it out, even though this was basically a two-hour spoiler. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, it's really quite something, man. So thank you for making the movie, and uh, I'm wishing Gregory well, and I'm wishing your journey well, and I hope that you make more movies in this vein. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate it. I hope uh, I hope uh, the, the film Icarus is currently uh, streaming on, on Netflix, so... You can find it, and uh, and um, I'm looking at other projects right now in in the documentary space um, to take these this knowledge that that I've had uh, and this experience um, and um, and expand upon that into uh, into other uh, subjects in in the documentary space because I. Uh, what is really cool, I think, about documentary and amazing is that as a filmmaker, you can set out on, on a journey and you ultimately don't know where it's going to lead to. And creatively, you have the power to craft anything you want because it's an unscripted format, which, which opens up the world of possibilities. But you also um, don't know what you're going into. And in the case of this, I... I couldn't have imagined as I set out on this journey that I would um, end up where it led to and that I would end up with uh, Gregory and my team exposing this 
this gigantic uh, conspiracy and scandal, but that I would also um, end up so much um, wiser and understanding of, of the world that we're living in. And that is something very cool uh, uh, about documentary, that it can take you on a journey uh, that is not only unexpected, but that can actually have impact and change in the world. So I'm hoping to continue to make projects that, that do that. Yeah, I would imagine you feel some level of responsibility to do so, to continue this conversation in, in a variety of ways, you know, extending the themes that you've introduced in this movie. That's what I'm looking to do. And uh, hopefully the more eyes on this film uh, will uh, allow me to continue on that journey. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, if people want to connect with Brian, uh, you're at Brian Fogel on Twitter, right? Are there other places where people can reach you? Is that the main way? Um, at, at Brian Fogel on Twitter, Brian with the Y, B-R-Y-A-N-F-O-G-E-L on Twitter. Um, I have a website, brianfogel.com and the movie is Icarus on Netflix. And are you doing any screenings coming up? Are you traveling around with the movie or what's going on? Um, the film launched uh, August 4th. Um, uh, Netflix is in the process of um, scheduling. They've scheduled a lot of screenings for, um, for various groups and, uh, and critics and things like that. And um, um, I think they are planning uh, some, you know, screenings coming up in, in, uh, uh, in the near future. But certainly, it it being on the platform, right. it's globally available. And uh, I just wonder uh, if you're doing like Q and As or any kind of live events, um, that kind of thing, because I'm sure people would love to see you get up and have a conversation with somebody relevant to the movie. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's in the works, and they're uh, they're they're trying to um, uh, to get those planned right now mm -hmm. as we kind of head into the next several months. So. Uh, um, I don't have specifics on that, but I do know that there, uh, there will be, uh, some screenings and talkbacks and Q and A's. Cool. Are there going to be any, uh, like, you know, like the, akin to the DVD extras, like you have, there's so many, so much footage you're sitting on. I would imagine there's all kinds of other stories that you could tell that are relevant. You could probably spend the next couple of years working on that, I would oh, imagine. Yeah. but I would love to see some of the stuff that you had to cut for time oh there was so much i mean because in the in the like i interviewed guys like alex gibney the documentary filmmaker oh, right. wow. who did the armstrong lie who's just brilliant and um and the interview that i shot with him was was so compelling i, I interviewed victor conti i interviewed oh, tyler wow. hamilton and and timmy duggan and i interviewed all these other scientists in europe and and sporting officials and so yeah, I mean the the amount of um, footage that I compiled is pretty uh, uh, pretty vast, and uh, and ninety seven percent of it didn't make it into the film. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that could I guess be a, an addendum um, that uh, uh, could be the ongoing uh, docu series. All right, well I'm <laughs> gonna sit here and hold my breath until you yeah. do that. All right, man. Good talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Peace. Let's. Wild, right? Incredible. Please make a point of checking out Icarus. You will not be disappointed. Uh, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this film, about the important issues and questions that it raises, especially as we head into Oscar season this spring. 
Until then, please check out the show notes for this week's show on the episode page at richroll.com. We have a full video version of the podcast available on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash richroll. Make sure you subscribe on that page as well. Uh, if you would like to support this show and my work, share it with your friends and on social media, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We have a Patreon set up for people who would like to support my work financially. Thank you so much to everybody who has done that. I did uh, an AMA the other day and asked me anything live video conference. Uh, there was only two people that attended. I think there was some confusion about uh, the links, etc. I did resolve the video problem, but apparently there is still a little bit of a gap in terms of connecting with my Patreon community. So I'm going to continue to try to refine and resolve those issues. That video conference is archived and available for all Patreon supporters. I put a link up on my Patreon page for you guys to find that. And I will be scheduling another one soon. So if you're on Patreon, have an eye out for that. Uh, how's your plate doing? How's the plant-based diet? Are you struggling? Do you have it dialed in? If you're having trouble making it work, well, I got good news for you. We created this unbelievably powerful online resource, this toolbox that takes all the guesswork out of making that leap to a more plant-centric diet and making it stick. When you sign up, you get thousands of plant-based recipes, unlimited meal plans and grocery lists. We're metric system compliant. We have unbelievable customer support and everything is personalized and customized based on your goals and your food preferences and your allergies. Uh, we even have grocery delivery in, I think, up to 60 metropolitan areas at this point. It's called the Plant Power Meal Planner. Really proud of it. And it's super affordable, just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. So to check it out and learn more, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner at the top menu on any page on my website, richroll.com. And when you're on my site, make sure you provide your email address and any of those email capture windows. And in exchange, you will receive a free weekly newsletter from me. It's called Roll Call. It's got five or six things I came across over the course of the week that I found inspiring or interesting or thought-provoking. Essentially, a couple articles, maybe a documentary or a video I watched or a product that I'm enjoying. No spam, no affiliate links, just good stuff. It's stuff that I would normally share on social media, but it kind of gets drowned out or lost. And this is just a way of um, communicating with you guys directly. So again, you can sign up for that anywhere on my website and any of those email capture windows. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, interstitial music, and help with the show notes and the WordPress page. Sean Patterson for help on graphics. David Zamet for his portraits and his video work and theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple of days. Until then, have a great week and be well. Peace. Plants. Namaste. Yeah.